Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do thank you that through the Lord Jesus, it is well with our souls. Because we know that it was not well before we knew you. We were without hope and without God in the world, and you condescended to make yourself known to us. And not only that, but to give yourself for us so that you could make us into the image of your own dear son. And so, Father, we are looking forward to the day when our faith will be sight. Lord, I pray even now that you would help us as we open your word. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the weekend, I spent some time looking through the signatures in my junior high and high school yearbooks. And I was just reading through what people wrote in their inscriptions to me. And in many ways, I think that they were pretty typical, but some of them sort of stood out. So I thought that I would share uh, a few of these with you. Um, this one from my junior high yearbook from a friend named James, he said, may your life be like a roll of toilet paper, long and useful. <laughs> Friends always. Uh, this one from a friend named Onika. She said, Denny, your freckles and braces make you irresistible. I, now, I, I think actually the freckles and braces weren't working for me in the way that she indicated because of what my friend Donna wrote in this next one. She said, Denny, you're a really cool guy. You're a real partying dude. Better luck with the women next year. <laughs> and then this one, that one guy, he didn't even sign it, but he put a little rap in my yearbook. He said, Denny Burke is a nice guy. Why? Because he likes to fly. Just bury two turntables above his feet before he die. That was great. Um, but there was this theme in some of the inscriptions that is the reason for me bringing this up. Because over and over, friends exhorted me to stay the same way that I was when they knew me in junior high and in high school. So um, my best friend, Barry Jocelyn, he actually... Believe it or not, we grew up together in Louisiana, but we actually live by each other right now and work together. Uh, he wrote in my yearbook, he said, Denny, thanks for being my best friend all this time. You're a cool dude. Thanks a lot. Stay cool, Barry. Another friend, Lisa, Denny, you're a really nice guy. Stay sweet. Denny, it's been nice knowing you. You're a real trip and fun to be around. Stay cool. Stay cool and sweet and cute, Kathy says. But some of these actually were, were hard to read, and um, they made me think of things that I regret. Um, one guy wrote, Denny, you're, you are my buddy. Enjoy college next year. Stay stupid. 
And then another one, Denny, you're, a, you're cool. Stay that way forever and keep on partying. And we will always be friends. Love, a guy named Robin. Have you ever thought about what your life would be like for you if your yearbook inscriptions came true? What if you actually did stay the way that you were then and never changed? Do you think that that would be a blessing? I'm, I'm sure there were some things about you that were just great and that were fine and that would be wonderful if they stayed the same. But how many of you can look back at your younger self and can say, wow, I wish that I were just the same way now that I was then? I know I don't wish that. If I were just the same person that I was then, no one would be laughing. It wouldn't be funny to anybody because I would be a horrible father. I would be a terrible husband. I wouldn't be qualified to be an elder here or anywhere. I wouldn't be in ministry at all. I wouldn't be a Christian. I would be a disaster if I were still now what I was then. It would be a curse on my life and on the people who rely on me if, if I never changed. Would it be any different for you if, if you never changed? If God were to leave us unchanged, that would be evidence that we don't know him at all. It would show that we still remain under the curse of sin. But that's just not how God leaves his people, is it? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, then God will not leave you unchanged. In fact, God's entire plan for your life is change. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, which means we are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's for all of us. You are a work in progress if you are a Christian. You are not now what you will be, and you are not now what you were before, if you know him. God is changing you into the image of his own dear son, Jesus. And at the end of all things, he has one final transformation to make of you. But this final transformation is not going to be progressive like your progressive sanctification right now that's happening over the course of your life. This final transformation is going to happen all at once in the twinkling of an eye. And that final change will be the greatest change of all. And that's what the Apostle Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 50 through 58. This entire chapter has been about the resurrection. And I've been preaching through this for I don't know how many weeks now, but we've been in this for a long time because it's the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. I think it's also one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible because it's the longest sustained reflection on the re resurrection that we get 
in the Bible. But we know in this chapter that Paul has been confronting an error that he saw in the Corinthian church. An error that was saying that there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. You saw that in verse 12. There, these folks in Corinth were likely under the influence probably of some kind of platonic philosophical tradition that saw the material world and our physical bodies as broken and weak and therefore not a part of what God intends to save in his work of salvation through Christ. Paul's confronted this error in no uncertain terms, saying that if they have a problem with God resurrecting bodies, then they have a problem with Jesus's resurrection because God resurrected his body. And if they have a problem with Jesus's resurrection, then they are still in their sins and not saved and without hope. So Paul has spent this entire chapter confronting them with this. And now in this final climactic paragraph, he's driving the point home one final time saying, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So Paul is going to address three items related to our final change, our final resurrection. And here are the three items. He's going to talk about the substance of our change in verses 50 through 53, the foundation of our change in verses 54 through 57, and then the conduct before our change in verse 58. So the substance of our change, the foundation of our change, the conduct before our change. The substance of our change. Everybody look at verse 50. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, many years ago, I read this text, and I used to believe that when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, what he meant to say was that physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God. Because what else could flesh and blood possibly mean here? I believed then that when we die, our bodies were dead and that God just rose up our spirits in some 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 way, but our flesh and blood, that wasn't a part of what was getting to heaven with us, our physical bodies. It would only be our resurrected spirits that would have eternal life. I'm not the only one, I don't think, who's made that mistake in reading this text. Countless people over the years have, have done that. Some people of far more consequence than me, but it is still a very serious error to be reading the text this way. And we know that because, because of what Paul means by the word flesh. Paul often uses that term flesh, not merely as a reference to physicality, but as a reference to that part of us that is still sinful and fallen. For example, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Or Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. 
So when Paul talks about flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not talking about your physical body per se. He's talking about that part of you that is still fallen and sinful. No part of you can remain fallen if it's going to inherit the fullness of the kingdom of God. You have to change to match the kingdom's goodness. The kingdom is not going to change to match your fallenness. So flesh and blood is that part of you that is fallen and that needs to be changed from fallen to perfect. I think this interpretation is confirmed by the second half of the verse. The second half of the verse is interpreting the first half. It says this, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The perishable is referring to that part of you which decays and dies. And right now, your body, my body, is still fallen, still subject to decay and death. And that kind of body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood are perishable in that sense. The kingdom of God is imperishable. The two cannot join together before the perishable gets transformed into imperishable. So what Paul's saying is that every believer must undergo this final transformation or else they cannot inherit, enter into their inheritance. So look at the next verse, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed. Now, when Paul uses that word mystery, hopefully we're used to it by now. He's not, he doesn't mean to say that he's talking about something that's currently mysterious to us. He's talking about something that was once hidden from us, but has now been revealed to us through the gospel. And so what does this gospel reveal to us? What, what's the mystery here? It reveals that we shall not all sleep, which means we shall not all die. But we will all indeed be changed. So by us, Paul means to refer to Christians. Of course, he was thinking of him and the Corinthians at that time, but it, by implication, it really applies to all of us. Some Christians will die before the Lord Jesus returns, and some Christians will still be alive when he returns, which means we, we shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die because there'll be some alive when he comes back. But no matter which group you are in, Paul is saying, you will be changed. And, the and that's the substance of our change, a transformation from perishable to imperishable. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, that word translated as moment is, is the word atomo. It's where we get our word atom from. It, it refers to an indivisible unit of time. It's so quick. In that sense, it's like the twinkling of an eye, which is referring actually to, to rapid eye movement, like the casting of a glance somewhere. How long does it take for you to move your eye from this place to that? As far as your perception is concerned, it's almost instantaneous, right? That's what your final transformation is going to be like. 
A trumpet will sound and there will be instantaneous glory for you. What's this trumpet blast though? Are you starting to hear all of these resonances from scripture? This, this trumpet blast signifies Jesus' second coming. Jesus himself spoke about this. In Matthew chapter 24, in verses 30 and 31, Jesus said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Paul talks about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. The trumpet sound that you and I will hear announces the return of Jesus. When he comes back and sets everything in order, and the first thing that he sets in order is us. He's going to remake everything. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in that day. But the first thing is the revealing of the sons of God. He is going to remake us first. First, those who have gone on before us. And then any of us who may happen to be still alive when he returns. And it's going to be like that. A trumpet blast and transformation. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must Put on immortality. This must happen. There are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. This must happen in the sense that this is an absolute divine necessity because that which is corrupted by sin, that which is like our mortal bodies, cannot exist in God's presence. So the substance of our change is transformation from perishability to imperishability, from mortality to immortality. And it will be glorious. You know, there was this point in Jesus' ministry, actually it was more than one point, many points in Jesus' ministry where the people listening to him wanted to kill him, especially the Jewish leaders. He would speak and preach. They would listen to him, and it provoked them so much. They hated it so much. They wanted to kill him right there on the spot, well before the, the time they finally put him to death at the cross. But there was this one point in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 5 where it says they wanted to kill him. They hated the way that he was, they thought that he was breaking the Sabbath. They hated the way that he was kept calling God his own father. Over and over he kept doing this. They knew that when he did that, he was making himself out to be equal with God. And so they, they wanted to kill him for it. How dare he say things like that about himself? You think Jesus was intimidated by that? He wasn't intimidated by that. Instead, he just 
he just, he just went right back at him. He said this. He said, he who does not honor the son, remember they don't like him calling himself the son. He who does not honor the son, me, does not honor the father who sent him. And then he says something about himself in John 5, 25 that's just stunning. It's something that could only actually be true of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This thing that Jesus told them in that moment can only be true of God. Jesus himself is God, and that means that this thing must be happen. It will happen. Jesus said that he's going to do this for us. And it's not just that it can happen, but that it must. Brothers and sisters, we have got to get this hope planted deeply in our hearts. We have got to not let the world as we see it now distract us from the world as it will be. And we cannot allow our weaknesses as they are now to distract us from what God is going to make us to be then. The world is not always going to be as it is now. Jesus is really going to split the skies open. He really is going to come for us and he's going to change us. At the sound of his voice, can you imagine this? The sky splitting open, a trumpet and a voice. And our decaying bones are going to hear the voice of our creator and obey in an instant transformation to life and to glory. That's what's going to happen. And that's the substance of our change. But notice also, so important, the foundation of our change. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You know what this verse is telling us? When God brings us to our final change, it will be a fulfillment of what he declared in long, long ages past. It will be a fulfillment of what God inspired his holy prophets to predict centuries before Paul even wrote this down and over two millennia before us right now. Nevertheless, God called it in advance. So it must happen. Death is swallowed up in victory. That line there, death is swallowed up in victory, you'll notice is in quotation marks. Because it's an illusion, kind of a loose paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 25 in verse 8, which we heard read 
at the beginning of the service. Isaiah 25, verse 8, the Greek version says this, He will swallow up death for all time. It's that idea of swallowing that's the, the real connection between what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and this allusion to Isaiah 25, verse 8. It's the same word for swallow in both texts, and it means to devour and to destroy something. It's the same word that's used, actually, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, which says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, someone to swallow and to destroy. That's what this, this word is. Well, guess what? When the Lord returns, guess who's going to be doing the devouring? It's not going to be the devil. The Lord Jesus will put an end to all of his prowling and to all of his devouring. And then Jesus is going to devour death. And it's not going to be a split decision like Jesus is having a wrestling match with death and it, who knows who's going to win this thing. No, it's not going to be a close call. It's going to be a total instant victory when he speaks the word. And so that's why Paul feels so confident that he begins to taunt death as if it were a person. He says in verse 55, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's as if Paul is saying, we've been watching every single person in the human race since Adam. Every single person is on this assembly line going off into the abyss and dying. Every single person is being overcome by death. Death has had this like infinity and O record against people. And Paul's saying, oh, really? Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting when Jesus shows up? You want to know who's infinity and O? Jesus is infinity and O. And so he's taunting death here. It's a loose quotation of the Greek version of Hosea 13, 14, where God says of his people, I will deliver them out of the power of Hades and will redeem them from death where is your penalty, O death? O Hades, where is your sting? It's an, that text is an assurance to God's wayward people that one day he will resurrect them. And now Paul is saying those words from Hosea, they are going to come to fulfillment at Jesus' return. Jesus takes away death's victory and he takes away death's Sting. What's the sting that Jesus is going to take away? That word translated as sting is actually a word that can refer to any sharpened object. It's used, it's used of a bee sting sometimes, but it's also used to refer to a sharpened stick or even the, the tip of a spear. The point is that it's something that causes pain when it goes into you, okay? That's what the sting is. In fact, it's a word that's used elsewhere to refer to torture. So you know what this means? When Paul's saying, where's your sting, death? He's saying, your sting's not going to be there because Jesus is going to take it away. And what that means is that Jesus is going to take away what is the most painful part of death. 
What is the most painful thing about death? It's not the physical suffering that may or may not accompany your death. It's not the grief that you feel about your own dying or about other people's dying. It's, it's not the loss of the things in this world. When you die, that's, that's not the greatest pain in death. Do you know what the most painful part is? It's in verse 56. The painful part, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. The most painful part of death is sin because sin is that which separates us from God. And that separation from God is permanent if you don't have new life in Christ. That's the most painful part of death. And it will go on forever. If you die without Christ, you become bereft of God and of his mercy forever. It's the most horrific thing that can ever happen to anyone. And that's why the sting of death is sin. Paul is saying, where's your sting? But the text also says that the power of sin is the law. So while we all acknowledge that the law itself is holy and righteous and good, it cannot by itself restrain sin or take away sin. On the contrary, Paul says in Romans 5.20 that the law came to increase the trespass. The law incites sin in our hearts. When you look at rules... Do you immediately say, let me obey them all? Or does it stir up in your heart rebellion? The Bible says it stirs up rebellion. It doesn't cure our sin. It incites it. But look at the next verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what this means? This is not a victory that's coming in the future. It's a, there will be part of it in the future, but this is a victory we're already participating in. Jesus has already given us victory over sin through his death on the cross and through his powerful resurrection. Our sin has been paid for if we repent and trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness and salvation. The part of death that is really painful for us has already been taken away. And all that is left to do is to give thanks to God for what he has done, which is what Paul does. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the foundation of our future change is right here in the work of Christ on the cross. Because our sin has been dealt with through Christ, we have hope that he's not going to judge us at the end. He's not going to be angry at us on the other side of death. He's going to rescue us at the end. He's not going to leave us dead and unchanged. He's going to raise us to life for good. All of this is going to happen as a fulfillment of that verse Verse 54, where he says, death is swallowed up in victory. And, and this is the part that I, I don't want you to miss. I, I, was, I was stunned by this when I saw this this week as I was preparing for this message. In fact, I was quite overcome by, by this. I find myself praying and worshiping in preparation for this sermon in a way that is, is unusual. 
But it did happen this time. Because, I don't know about you, reading all this stuff, it just started making me think about all the people that I've known who are dear to me and have been dear to me, who are believers, who are gone. The ones who I was close to and who, in many cases, I felt died too soon. The, the early encounters with death I had were with my grandmothers. They died in the same summer within a span of a couple of months in 1984. They both had cancers that were preventable. I think about my best friend's mother, the guy who wrote that inscription a while ago, Sharon Jocelyn, same thing. My uncle Billy, I think about three little glory babies that Susan and I never got to meet. And then I thought about the spring of 2005. All at once, three people that were dear to me and to my family all died all in that spring. My uncle Hoy, we went to the hospital. They took him to the hospital. We thought he would go in and we would go see him. And we went into the room and he was, he was gone. And there was my aunt right there beside him weeping after 42 years of marriage. It was too soon. That same spring, my seminary roommate, Mike, he was working on his house with his seven months pregnant wife. She runs out to the store and when she comes back, he's, he's laying there dead on the floor. He had a total cardiac arrest. He's like 35. And she's seven months pregnant with a daughter that he would never meet. It was way too soon. Same spring of 2005, my cousin's two-year-old son, they were having a pool party in the backyard, and they couldn't find little Levi. But then somebody spotted him in the bottom of the hot tub. He had apparently fallen in when nobody was looking. And they tried to revive him, but they could not. They, the machines kept his heart going for a few days, but, but he was gone. For my cousin and her husband, that, that, that pain is still very, very close to them. That was, that was way too soon. Our family still reels from what happened to, to Levi. So I, I keep, as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians 15. I've been thinking about all this. I also find myself thinking about you. Some of you have had to say goodbye way too soon to some precious people. When we first came to Kenwood, um, Katie Bond, she was married to Tom for 62 years. Katie could hardly make it here anymore, but 
She and Tom were married for 62 years, and, and he died. I think of a dear brother here who carried his wife's voice messages with him on his phone as long as he could after she died because he missed her so much. There's a, very, a family very dear to us who had to watch cancer take away their teenage son from them in this room. I can't even imagine. There's a, there's a lot of stories like that in this room and more. But Paul says something to us in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, comfort one another with these words. And they're words like these here in 1 Corinthians 15. Because look at what Paul gives to us when he says that death is swallowed up in victory. He connects us back to these words of promise from Isaiah 25. And this, this was the part that was stunning to me because... Paul only quotes that part about death being swallowed up by victory. There's actually more to it. You should look at it. Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9. Just feast your eyes on this. He says this. He says, he will swallow up death forever. That, that's the resurrection part where he raises us all up. But look what he says next. He says, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You, you know what those tears mean. Those tears mean grief. The grief that comes from having felt the bitterness of death that's come too soon. How many people in your life are close enough to you to come up to you and put your, their hands on your face? You don't, let, you don't let people touch your face. How many people are close enough to you to come up to you and wipe away tears from your face? No, not many people in your life can come up and, and wipe away tears from your face. The kinds of people who wipe away tears from your face are people like a spouse, a brother, maybe a sister, or a father. And nobody can do it like a good Father, And in the tenderest of moments, your father is going to be the one who does this for you. He will take all this thing out, all the bitterness and grief away right there. And then the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. No more mistreatment of God's people. No more lies about God's people, no more slanders and mocking of God's people, and no more killing of God's people. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And you know what happens when the Lord speaks? All creation obeys. And then verse 9. Isaiah 25, it will be said on that day, 
behold, this is our God. And this is the part that got me, because who's going to be saying on that happy day, behold, this is our God? The only people that are going to be saying that are God's people. But at this point, it's all of God's people who will now have been raised to glory because when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first and then those of us who remain will be quickly changed and we will meet them in the air, which means we're all going to be raised up together. We'll see each other face to face. We'll have each other again. Our tears will be gone. Our smiles will be back. Eyes meeting again with loved ones that were long lost. I imagine saying something. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to say? Maybe something like it was, it, it was too soon. And so hard when you left. It's been too long. And we've been so tired. But it's happening right now. It's really happening. He's really doing it. It happened so fast. I heard this trumpet. He called me forth. And it was so quick. Here I am. Here you are. And there he is. It already feels like joy. Overflowing forever. I kind of see all that in verse 9 because it says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The substance of our change is our transformation from mortal to immortality. The foundation of our change is the word of God and the work of Christ, which is going to bring all of this about. But this conduct before our change is verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know what that means? It means that we have a little while longer. All that sweetness that is ahead is, 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 is in front of us, but we have a little while longer to endure. So we, we have to be real about this because this means we have griefs to endure. Some griefs we've already endured and, and, and all of us have griefs in front of us that we still have to endure. We still have temptations to flee. We have a devil to resist. We have a flesh to put to death. We have trials that we're going to have to suffer. But in all of that, God is saying that we have to be steadfast and immovable, never falling away from the hope that he's given us. In fact, the only way you're not going to fall away during those times is to hang on to that hope that he's given us. Not moving one inch from the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. 
believing and doing all that God has told us to believe and to do, no matter what happens to us. That's what it means to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, joyfully bearing it all. How do you, know, how do, you do that? Look at the last part of the verse. Knowing that the Lord... The, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Which means that none of the pain, none of the grief that you go through is going to be wasted. None of it. Anything that you go through for the sake of Jesus, it will be worth it at the end. Because the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Our labor is not in vain. It is going to break open into something beautiful for us. In 1609, the poet, English poet John Donne wrote, a poem that you're probably familiar with, Death Be Not Proud. I don't know of a better way to finish this message than to read this to you. This is John Donne's own death taunt. Death, be not proud, though some have called you mighty and dreadful, for you are not so. For those who think that you overthrow, die not. Poor death, nor can you kill me. From rest and sleep, which but your pictures be, much pleasure. Then from you much more must flow. And soon our best men with you do go. Rest of their bones and souls delivery. You are a slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. And do with poison and war and sickness dwell. And poppier charms can make us sleep as well and better than, that, than your stroke. Why swellst thou then? Which means, why are you so proud, death? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, you shall die. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage of our convictions. To believe these words. To be like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He looked through the pain of death. And he was able to do it for the joy before him on the other side. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the joy that is for us on the other side. And by that, you would make it so that we're not fearful and faltering and weak and unfaithful. Make us in the now time steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, set our hopes on that day when you will make all things new again. And I pray for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.